0: Now, this is a big question, but uh, how would you answer it? Uh, And the question is this, what's wrong with the world we live in? And I don't think I have to convince anyone that the world that we live in is just filled with lots of pain and suffering and brokenness and disease and famine and war and poverty and genocide and suicide bombings and rape and slavery and racial discrimination. Like we know that, we see that, we experience that. So what happened to the world? Like, what happened to this world that we live in that it is just so broken and just so filled with pain and suffering? Now, if you don't know the story, it would be easy to come to some pretty wrong conclusions. You could come to the conclusion, just look at the world and how messed up it is, and say, well, clearly God doesn't exist. Or if God does exist, he clearly doesn't care because if he did care, he would do something about it. Or maybe he does exist, and maybe he does care, but because things are as bad as they are, maybe he's just not really all that powerful. Maybe he's just kind of stumped in heaven, and I have no idea what to do with these crazy people. So if you don't know the whole story, you could come to some seriously wrong conclusions about the storyteller. You could come to some wrong conclusions about God. He doesn't exist. He doesn't care. He's not powerful. So if we don't know the story, we will make wrong conclusions, and the wrong conclusions could severely impact our story, how we decide to live our lives. Now, I think one of the things that many of us know or uh, at least would recognize, uh, but we often forget, is that our lives and everything that happens within our lives Something much bigger is going on. I think most of us realize it's not just our story, that there's something else that's happening outside of us, something else that's much larger, much grander, much bigger that's going on around our little story. Uh, John Elridge, in a great little short book called Epic, said this, Christianity, in its true form, tells us that there is an author and that he is good and beautiful and true for he is the source of all these things. And it tells us that he has set our hearts' longings within us. It warns us that the truth is always in danger of being twisted and corrupted and stolen from us because there is a villain in the story who hates our hearts and wants to destroy us. It calls us up into a story, capital S, That is truer and deeper than any other, and assures us that there we will find the meaning of our lives. And I love how he just summed up. Christianity asserts that there's a much bigger story uh, that's happening. Uh, In short, our story is part of a much bigger story, part of God's story. Now, as we looked at last week, every story uh, has a beginning. It's got to begin somewhere, and the beginning of the story, when we looked at it last week, we discovered in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Those are the opening lines of the story of God. In the beginning, God. And I said this last week, but if we're going to find meaning and purpose in our lives, in our story, it begins with God, and as we looked at last Sunday, God is creator of all. He created you, he created me, and he created us to know him and to love him and to have a perfect relationship with him. Uh, In another great book called Welcome to the Story, uh, the author Stephen Nicholas said it well, God's not far off. He is not distant and uninterested. God longs to be with us with his treasured creation. That's what we saw in the beginning of the story. God longs to know you and to be with you and to have a perfect relationship with you. But have you ever noticed when you're watching, honestly, pick any movie you want, have you ever noticed that every, almost every movie follows the same storyline? Everything is great in the beginning, but then something goes wrong. In every movie, it follows like generally this storyline of everything started well, but then something went terribly wrong. And then the characters in the story, there's just struggle and there's tension uh, and there's just this battle. As the story goes on, somewhere along the way, a hero is introduced that helps to bring things back to the way that they were created to be. And even in movies, if you watch, that start off like, starts off like terrible and there's destruction and devastation, there's always something that says, and 48 hours earlier, it wasn't like this. So what is it? My question would be, why is this? Why does Every story that Hollywood comes up with that authors write in books, why does it follow this this narrative, this plot line? And I just my answer was because all of these films are borrowing from the story of God. And in the story of God, we see that in the beginning, everything was perfect. Everything was perfect. God was perfect. You and I were created perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with the creation itself, but then something went terribly wrong that changed absolutely everything. Again, as I'm sharing these things, I want you to, we can't just have a part of the story or a piece of the story. What I'm doing today and hoping to do today is, is answer the question, what happened? What happened to me? What happened to you? What happened to us and the, and the world we live in? And uh, Justin Buzzard, in a great book called The Big Story, he said this, every person on the planet believes some sort of story to help them make sense of life, the world, and how it all works. Whatever story we believe, though, needs to account for all the pain in the world. There is pain inside of us and all around us. It's everywhere, and we need to be able to make sense of it. So how do you make sense of it? How do you make sense of you? How do you make sense of things like jealousy and anger and lust and bitterness and greed? How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of that played out on a much grander scale in the world that we live in? How is it that we've gotten so far away from where we were created to be? What happened? What happened that you and I, if we were really created to know God and have a perfect friendship, a relationship with God... And there was meant to be harmony and peace and joy and satisfaction. Like, what happened that we've gotten so far away from what God intended and created us to enjoy? Well, the beauty of knowing God's story is that not only does it answer that question, but the answer itself gives us reason to have so much hope and to have so much joy. See, when someone asks, Michael, what's wrong with the world? I I don't just say, well, the world is really jacked up because of this, and that's it. As I understand and know the story, there is an answer to the question of what happened. But even more than just answering that question, uh, there is hope for what is happening and what will happen. If you have a Bible, turn to Genesis uh, chapter 3, and I'm just going to read a a part of the story uh, that really answers the question of, of what happened uh, this is in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the first seven verses. And you have to remember, in two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we experience, we catch a glimpse of what life must have been like. And it must have been amazing. It must have, been, I mean, can you imagine living life uh, with no pain, with no suffering? Can you imagine living life with absolutely no insecurity? Can you imagine living life absolutely seeing God and being seen by God and walking with God and enjoying God? Can you imagine? And I think most of us, I can't imagine that. I can dream of that, but gosh, a life without insecurity, a life without pain, a life without pride or lust or greed or envy or bitter, like, wow. But in the first two chapters of the story of God, that's what life was like. And I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know if it was a few days, a few weeks, months, or years, but in Genesis 3, something happened that forever changed everything. This is Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day, he asked the woman, did God really say, you must not eat the fruit from the uh, trees in the garden? Verse 2, well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. The woman replied, it's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And God said, well, you must not, and God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, well, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows uh, that your eyes will be opened and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And verse 6. This is decision time right here in verse 6. And the woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and then suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, That, to me, is a really sad story, to go from just paradise, to go from perfection. And what a horrific feeling it must have been initially to feel something you never felt before called shame. Shame enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Now, this story in Genesis is widely known as the fall, and the moment in time where man decided to rebel against God, and from this point everything changed. Everything changed. Again, quoting Justin Buzzard from his book, The Big Story, he just said, all the brokenness in the world, in your life, in your city can be traced back to that single bite. One taste of the forbidden fruit and the world changed. It is no exaggeration to say that all that is wrong with the world, all that is wrong with us can be traced back to what took place in the garden. And I realize that it's I don't know if you thought this. I certainly did. What's the big deal? My goodness. You're going to say that everything that is wrong in the world that we live in can be traced back to a moment in time in Genesis chapter 3 when a husband and wife had perfect relationship and they did something that God didn't want them to do. That's what's wrong with the world that we live in. And I would say, yeah. Yeah in that moment, wrapped up in that one bite, was rebellion against God, was pride, was idolatry, and ultimately it was treason towards God. The moment that humanity said, we're going to go our own way, humanity has continued to go its own way. And as humanity continues to go its own way, further and further and further away from what God has, we experience the pain and the devastation and the consequences that comes with that. Now, obviously we could do months uh, on these few verses here. Uh, But this morning, I just wanted to share with you a few things that I learned from Genesis 3, Uh, things that are actually really challenging. Uh, But here are a few things that we learned from Genesis chapter 3. Number one would be this. We have an enemy. There is an enemy. We have a real enemy. Scripture refers to him as Satan, the devil, Lucifer, or even the great dragon. As you skip forward in the story to the New Testament, 1 Peter, Peter says this, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You and I, we have an enemy, and he hates you. And he wants to destroy and ruin not just your life, but the lives of those that are around you. Now, it's one thing to know that we have an enemy who's seeking to destroy our lives and the world we live in, but I wanted you to catch, here's how he does it. Here's how he gets us to trip. Here's how he gets us to go the way that God doesn't want us to go. Uh, he gets us to question what God says. Well, did God really say that? Did God really say that he doesn't want your relationship to look like that? Does God really say that it's you know, not okay to do this? He gets us to question the consequences. Clearly, this is going to work out for you. It's not bad. Did God really, you know, he gets us to question the, the devastating consequences of disobedience or rebellion? And then the third way is he lies about God. He gets us to think that God is somehow, some way, holding out on us. And when we think that God is somehow holding out on us, what do we do? We begin to grab for that which he hasn't actually given to us. So those are just three ways he gets us to question what God says, he gets us to question the consequences, and he lies about God, getting us to think that God's actually holding out on us. Uh, Mere Christianity was an incredible, helpful book to me and a few other people, Uh, but C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said this, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was this idea that they could be like God's. Could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history: money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make that which will make him happy. That's what happened in the garden. There was an enemy and there was deception. And he planted seeds and got them thinking life without God doing what you want, grabbing for what you would like to have, is so much better than the life that God actually has for you. So the first thing I see in Genesis 3 is we have an enemy. He's real. He's powerful. His name is Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the great red dragon. A second thing I learned from uh, Genesis 3, sin is a choice we make, and it's never a good choice to make. Sin is a choice that we make. There was no forcing. In that moment, Adam, Eve, they had a, a moment in time to choose, and they used the choice that they had to go away from where God had called them to go. Sin is a choice. We make, and it's never, ever a good choice to make. In 42 years of living, I've made so many sinful choices. And I cannot look back at any one of those choices and say, gosh, I'm so glad I did that. Because that worked out so well. Every sinful choice has been met with a painful consequence to me and to those that are around me. Mike Cosper, in his book, The Stories We Tell, when talking about the fall, he said this, the fall was a choice for less not more. And I think sometimes we're kind of duped into thinking that sin is actually going to bring us more, bring us greater, bring us more pleasure, more joy, more satisfaction, more... And I loved how he said it, the fall was a choice for less. Every time you and I choose sin, choose to go and do whatever God doesn't want us to do, it is always a choice for less, never for more. Now, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with this, but it's, uh, if he didn't want them to do it, then why put a a tree in the garden? Like, if he really didn't want them to make a choice to choose, then why did you put a tree in the garden? And this is humanity's way of asking that question, saying, God, ultimately, this is your fault. (laughs) This is, you did this. This wasn't me. If you would not have put that tree in the garden, I wouldn't have chosen the tree. I wouldn't have chosen rebellion. Rebellion. I would still be living and eating with you. So, God, if you didn't want us to make that choice, then why did you even put the tree in the garden in the first place? And again, this is a question that we could talk about for a long time, but I think the simple answer is, well, God loved you and I enough to give you a choice, to choose to love him and to be obedient to what God wants you to do, but he also loved you enough to say, I'm going to give you the choice. I'm going to tell you what the consequences are about uh, the choices of the, consequences of the choices you make about life outside of me. I love you enough to tell you the consequences, but I love you enough to let you choose. And in that moment, they had the opportunity to say, we don't need that. We have God. I don't need a tree. I don't need more wisdom. I don't need to have the knowledge of good and evil. Do you think there was ever a moment where Adam and Eve were like, I'm so thankful we we understand darkness and evil and hatred? God loved them enough to give them a choice. Now, let me give you a story. Uh, Imagine there's a father and he has a daughter. And this father, he's a great dad. Like, he loves his daughter. He is bent on caring for her and providing for her. He is a father that cares for his daughter and everything that she has ever needed, everything that he has provided for. Why? Because he loves her, and he cares for her, and he protects her. But the father says to the daughter, but I have one thing. I have one thing that I'm telling you, do not ever do. Never, no matter what, never do this one thing. I've loved you. I've cared for you. I've provided for you. I will continue to do all of these things But there's one thing that I would ask that you would never do. And the father says, uh, never, ever get into the car of a young man who's been drinking. Because I know the consequences of that choice, of that decision will be devastating. Would any one of us look at that father and say, you're a jerk. Can't believe you tell your daughter that. Like, what kind of dad are you? who do you think you are telling your daughter that you love and that you care for not to get in the car of a guy who has been drinking? How selfish are you, dad? How many of us would say, amen, don't ever do it. It's a terrible decision. It's a terrible choice. I think most of us would applaud the father for providing and caring for and loving, but giving her the one restriction and say, don't ever do this. And we all know that if the girl does that, we know that there will be absolutely a devastating consequence that she and so many other people will have to live with. You see, that story, it makes sense to me. I understand that if a father tells his daughter not to do something because he's protecting her and he cares for her and he loves her, that story makes sense to me. It makes sense to me in Genesis chapter 3, that God laid out perfection. He laid them in Eden, and he gave them all of everything that they ever needed, but he said, just don't do this. And it makes sense to me that if you would do that, then everything else falls apart. See, this is a story that absolutely makes sense to me, because every time I choose to go my own way, do my own thing, ignoring what God has for me, gosh, it's always choosing less. It's never choosing more. See, we need to have a story that makes sense of pain and a story that makes sense of suffering. And that is a story that makes sense to me. It makes sense that if I go my own way, I'm going to have to experience the consequences of my choices and my decision. The third thing I tell you about Genesis 3, and this goes without saying, but sin destroys every time. Sin destroys every time. It devastates our relationship with God as well as our relationship with one another. And some of the saddest verses in Genesis chapter 3 or in verse 23 and 4, it says this, the Lord God banished them from the garden. Gosh, can you imagine? You'd lived in Eden. You've tasted Eden. You'd been with God. And then God says, you got to go. You can't stay here anymore because the choice to walk away and rebel. It cost banishment from me. Can you imagine how painful that must have been not only for God the Father, but for Adam and Eve? So the Lord banished them from the garden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he'd been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed Uh, mighty cherubim uh, angels to the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And that picture was a reminder to to Adam and Eve, where you were, you can't be anymore. And these angels are, are protecting the way that you can't come in. Sin destroys, it devastates every single time. And to be clear, uh, sin was not just a choice that Adam and Eve made. It's a choice we all make. All of us have done this. There's not one person in this room, on this planet, who has never, ever, ever sinned. Scripture says in 1 Kings, for there's no one who does not sin. Psalm 14, all have sinned and turned away. Romans 3.23, everyone has sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. J. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said it very very profoundly and boldly. We have proud, unbelieving, thoughtless, careless, greedy, self-serving spirit. We live to please ourselves, and in our hearts, we keep God at bay. Our egocentric, anti-God attitude seeks to play God, use God, fool God, and fight God all at the same time. This is us. This is what's wrong with the world. Well, it started with, it starts with me, What's wrong with me is sin, and I've chosen sin, and sin is absolutely destructive. It impacts everyone. Now, let me ask, if the story stopped here, imagine if the story just stopped and the headline simply read in Genesis 4, verse 1, God created man, man rebelled, God banished man, all men are lost, the end. Can you imagine if that's really how the story went? God created man to have a perfect relationship, but man rebelled. So God had to banish man, and all men are lost. The end. Do You remember when I asked you the question, what's wrong with the world? Well, it's one thing to just have an answer of details and, and facts. But as I understand my story, meaning God's story, what's so encouraging is this: it makes sense to me. It makes sense that when I do what God doesn't want me to do, there's a mess that's going to follow. But it doesn't just leave me in that mess. What the story of God tells me is God has a plan. Now, when I was a kid, uh, I don't know whether it was my like crazy ADD off the charts, but I got lost all the time. I was the youngest of five kids, and so when you're the youngest of five, you can easily get lost in the, in the shuffle of things. So I don't know if we're walking around the mall and I see blue lights. I'm like, wow, blue lights. That's amazing. I love blue lights. And five minutes later, after following blue lights, I have no idea where I am and where my family is. Or we were a swimmer family, so we were traveling all the time, going to different competitions. I'm like, wow, that's a cute girl. And I keep walking away from. I would just get lost all the time, and no, like I got lost all the time. Now the thing that, if you've ever been lost, and I'm talking as a little kid. Uh, I'm talking, if you've ever been lost, it can be a pretty frightful thing. Uh, it can be a really scary thing. But because I'd gotten lost so much, the thing that always just brought great encouragement that took away any fear I had about my lostness was I knew my dad. I, my dad would always look for me, my dad would always come for me. There was never a, a moment in time where my dad was like, dude, This is the 10th time this has happened this month. Forget it. I'm done searching for you. There was never a moment in time where my dad gave up on me. Every time I got lost, he came without fail. And the look that I saw on his face was not one of just like stern, ready to smack me upside the head. Was this look of just care and concern. Like, I don't want you to be where you are. I want you to be with me. Because when you're with me, There is safety. There is comfort in that. Now, what unfolds in the remaining chapters of God's story is one of him pursuing us so that we would not remain lost from him, no longer banished from his presence. In his book, Welcome to the Story, Stephen Nichols again said it well. Coming to grips with the fall is a crucial element to grasping the story. It is the fall that sets the stage for redemption, As real as sin and the fall is, redemption and forgiveness is too. And because redemption and forgiveness is real, we can have hope and we can have peace. So we need to know the fall. We need to know the story of what went wrong with me, what went wrong with you, what went wrong with the world we live in, because it sets the stage for the next scene. And the next scene unfolds through the rest of Genesis to Revelation of God chasing, God pursuing, God coming for us. Some very familiar verses that I wanted to read in Isaiah. Uh, If you have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen, but Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of many of God saying, I'm coming for you. uh, Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, this is about 700 years before the time of Christ. Nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Skip down to verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Over and over and over again, the message of God's story is so clear. God is not content to leave man in his separation, in his banishment. God is committed to making a way for us to be with him. So the Christmas story is not like a story that just makes you feel good and and to be generous type of a story. The Christmas story is a story that says, I've come. I've come. I have come. John Elridge in his book Epic said it again so well. God himself, the king of all creation, takes on human flesh and enters our story as one of us. He sets aside his glory, clothes himself with humility, and sneaks into any, the enemy camp under the cover of night to whisper, of, uh, to whisper words of love to his own. I love how he says it here. I have come for you. If someone asks you, what is Christmas about? It's God whispering to us, I've come for you. I have come for you. So you don't have to be banished from Eden anymore. You don't have to be separated from relationship from me anymore. What is Christmas about? I've come. God says, in my story, I have come for you. I have come to do for you what you could not do for yourself. You were lost, and I as a father came. I came for you. I want to read a few more verses, and we'll finish with this. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 1. And I just, I'm not going to have time to explain all of these verses, but I just want you to hear the language that John uses to explain what Christ has done. When God says, I have come for you, I want you to hear these words in John chapter 1. In the beginning, the word already existed, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything. The word here is speaking about Jesus, about the Son of God. Verse 4, the word gave life to everything. The reason you and I even have life is because Jesus has given us life and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Skip down to verse 10. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and they even they rejected him. And verse 12, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human or flesh and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So much could be said about those verses. But I will say one thing, and I want you to catch the amazing truth of what John articulates in John chapter 1. In Christ, you're a child of God. In Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of God. This is a truth that was never lost on John. Towards the end of John's life, in one of his final letters in John chapter 1, John, Chapter three, he says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. This is amazing to me that God would ever look upon me and say, that's my son. That God would ever look upon you and say, that's my son and that is my daughter. But what Jesus has done for us in the story of God is he came He gave life and he came. He entered into the world that all who would believe in him. And he made very clear there are people who rejected him. But the darkness is not going to extinguish the light. And this incredible promise in verse 12, yet to anyone, to everyone who receives the light, who receives Jesus Christ, he gave them the right to become children of God. That's amazing to me. Because I didn't do anything to, to, to deserve God coming to look for me. I didn't do anything for, for God to say, yeah, I want that guy in my family. I've done nothing but sin. I've had nothing but pride in my heart. I've done absolutely nothing. But God says, but yet, Michael, if you receive my son and everything that my son has done for you, You become a child of God. You become my son. The last question I'll ask you is this, and this is a hard one, and I really want you to sit with it for a second, but how does God feel about you right now? Right now, how does God feel about you? And I think what happens is many of us think, gosh, what did I do last night? What have I already done today? Like, how does God feel about me? How God feels about me is often dictated by what I've done or haven't done. And it gets us to question, well, I'm guessing God's pretty pretty disappointed in me. I want you to know, if you've made the decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to know how God feels about you? He looks down from heaven and screams, that's my son. I'm pleased with you. I'm so pleased with you. That's how God feels about you. That's my daughter. I love you. Because when God looks at you, he sees his son in us and all that his son has done and that we've received that for ourselves. And he says, that's my son. Now, how do I know that God says that? Well, because God from heaven looks down at Jesus and says, that's my son, whom I am well pleased. And to all who have received Christ, Christ lives within us. And so God looks from heaven to you and says, I'm pleased with you. Thomas Merton said it very well. Quit keeping score altogether and surrender yourself with all your sinfulness to God who sees neither the score nor the scorekeeper, but only his child, redeemed by Christ. Quit keeping score and know that if you've received Christ in faith, if you have trusted Christ, he sees his child. He sees you as his son, as his daughter. But to those that are here today that haven't received Christ, for you it's been maybe a spiritual thing, a religious thing, a moral thing. When, Christ, when God looks upon you and thinks upon you, he says, I love you, but you're still lost. I've made a way for you. I've made an opportunity for you to come back to Eden, where there is no more banishment from my kingdom. God looks at you in love and says, would you respond to what I've done for you? This morning, I want to just finish by giving you the opportunity to respond. And what I mean by that is, if you have received Christ, I'm going to pray, and I just want you to say thank you. I don't want it to be lost on anyone here, that if you are a Christian, you've received Christ, You're a child of God. I hope that never, ever gets old to you, ever. John, 90 years old, at the end of his life, isn't it amazing the love that God's given us, lavished on us, that he should call us children of God and that's what we are? You're his son, you're his daughter. In this time of prayer, give thanks. Give thanks that he made a way for you to get found.